welcome to this event, which is the press at Colorado College's third decade birthday party. The press is 30 years old now, and it had some old friends for a celebration. Betty Bright, our speaker this afternoon, is one of those old friends. Uh, she was the curator of the press's traveling uh, exhibition, which went to a number of locations on the coasts and in the middle, among them her own place, Minnesota Center for the Book Arts and the Newbury Library in Chicago. Um, she is also the author of the book on book arts in America in the third quarter of the 20th century called No Longer Innocent, Book Art in America, 1960 to 1980, which you could come and you know, feel. When after this talk, uh, you will have the opportunity to feel, to turn the pages of some of the works she's talking about in this talk, which is called Letting Vision Find Its Way, and which, toward the end, comes to ourselves and the press at Colorado College. Uh, Betty's a distinguished curator and, and a critic of fine printing, and we welcome her this afternoon. Thank you, Carol. And uh, let's see, how am I going to, can I push this? Nope, I won't. Huh. That. Just trying to get myself set here. I want to, uh, bless you. I want to give a heartfelt thank you to um, several faculty members, um, but in particular, of course, to Carol Neal uh, and to other local supporters who have risen up and persevered in the last nine years to continue the lifespan of the press at Colorado College, uh, as well as the other friends that Carol alluded to who've flown in for the Press Fest, and to Colin Frazier, who is our host as the current printer at the press. Uh, it's great to be here, and it's got to be one of the most gratifying moments in my 24 years in the field um, to witness the kind of leadership that was demonstrated by Colorado College in its support of this vital resource for book art. It's a tremendous time and it's an exciting story and we look forward to telling that story more and more to our colleagues across the country. So I'm trying to figure this out. Oh, there we go. Um, as we gather during this anniversary year, this 30th anniversary of the first publication from the press at Colorado College, it's clear that the resurgence of the press couldn't have happened at a more felicitous time. It aligns with a gathering of interest and commitment that we're seeing across the field and across America. At least eight happenings, eight gatherings, such as book fairs, conferences, and symposia are happening in the coming year, if we, if we date it from today, in Delaware, New York, Washington, D.C., Minneapolis, San Francisco, Philadelphia. It's just an unprecedented number. As well, what we've seen just recently are a number of awards that are starting to pop up, including, uh, for the students here, uh, the College Book Art Association will be awarding uh, student awards for both undergraduate and graduate work in the book art this coming January at their first official conference uh, in, in Iowa City, even though they themselves have been meeting unofficially for 20, over 20 years, they've now incorporated. And so they're launching it with a, with a conference and they're, they're handing out these awards. It's, it's an exciting time and it's almost as though uh, these artists who've been teaching at colleges across the country, most of them have taught for about 20 years now. They're not necessarily going to retire tomorrow, but they've, they've set things in place and they're reaching back to help the next generation forward. So it's a great time to be interested in this field. 
And the thing that's so curious and great about it is this Renaissance in book art is happening literally in the midst of a 24-7 virtual carnival of online distraction. So uh, it, it makes it all the more relevant, I think, for us to, to think about why this has happened. So how did we get here, and what role did the press at Colorado College play in the resurgence of letterpress in the book arts? Now what I'm going to do is take a drink. Those of us who are sea level people uh, tend to get a little dry mouthed at uh, high elevation. So I may have to do that more than once. I hope you'll forgive me. What I'm going to do is we're going to look at uh, several key works from uh, that first 20-year period of the press at Colorado College because I've had the chance now to look back and think about the contributions of the press. And before I do that, though, I'm going to set some context in place big time. I mean, what I mean is very general scene setting, quick, quick, quick scene setting. So uh, buckle up and bear with me. But what I'd like to do is uh, I'll be talking a little bit about vision and the visual in this talk, hence the, hence the title. And I'm going to begin by reading a section from the, the poem Revador by Wendell Berry that uh, Jim Trissel published as a book in 1979. And uh, this phrase that begins it is also from that book, just to get us in a calm place. And so, in the first warmth of the year, I went up with saw and axe to cut a way in. I made a road. I made a thought way under the trees, up the slope, and that was ancient work. In rhyme of flesh with flesh, time with time, act with act, I made my way into the woods, leaving an order that was mine, a way opening behind me by which I came out again. Revador, which published this poem uh, by Wendell Berry, appeared from the press, as I mentioned, um, in 1979. A lot had happened in the previous decade, or more than a decade, that had dramatically affected how people, and in particular artists, felt about books. From the 1960s forward, fine printing enjoyed a resurgence of interest that was spawned in part by the availability of cylinder presses. Presses were being sold or discarded as even the smaller printing establishments finally switched over to photocomposition and offset. The availability of the means to make books joined with the desire to give voice on the part of young people for whom liberation meant controlling their voice at their own press, free of interference from the establishment's overlords. Here in Colorado Springs, the press found life from a fire sale that was spotted by Colorado College's provost, Jim Staus. Staus had known Harry Duncan in college, more about him in a second, who had since developed into a celebrated fine printer. Staus was similarly infected with the desire to print, but sadly, he fell ill before he could set up the press, but the young professor of painting and art history, whom he had asked to help move the equipment, Jim Trissel, caught the bug instead. A few years later, Trissel set up the press during a sabbatical, and the rest, as we say, is history. 
printing was in the air, as I said, from the 60s forward, and by the late 70s, there were at least two aesthetics in play. And this is really what the point that I want to be making here, so hold on with me, because we're going to go two different places rather quickly. Let's see. So this is a demonstration of the first aesthetic. Uh, Harry Duncan, the printer whom I mentioned, began as a poet and brought an ear for language to printing and to his writing in lyrical essays about literature and books and the vicissitudes of letterpress. This is his Eye of Heaven from 1982. Duncan also taught first at the University of Iowa in Iowa City and then at the University of Nebraska in Omaha. <clears throat> Jim Trissel visited Duncan in Nebraska and, among others, he informally studied for a time with um, Kim Merker, a former Duncan student. Merker was by then running a press at the University of Iowa. During that sabbatical year for Trissel, he read and looked and thought about books and how they should be made. The aesthetic pursued by Duncan and Merker and emulated by other printers was crisp and clean. It showed open pages whose typography enhanced but did not interfere with the legibility of the language. A mastery of printing led to type crisply impressed into the page, literally letter-pressed, and visual material was present but in a subordinate role. The word was the thing. Now, we're going to talk about the second track that really started to show up for the first time in the 60s, but I want you to hold this aesthetic in your mind, okay? Because we're going to go a little further afield. This second track was forged by studio artists who valued language, but also brought a visual sensibility and a playful or challenging stance to their work with books. Their alternate aesthetic grew in part out of the art movements of the 60s and 70s. In the 60s, everything had been fodder for art, every rule was made to be broken. Oh. For example, we have Lucas Samaras from 1962. This is his book four, Dante's Inferno. A little different than just reading the text. By the 70s then, a number of art movements delved into new media, materials, strategy, and content. The Fluxus movement, a different uh, source of influence, found resonance with several book artists. Fluxus engaged chance in the everyday and sought improvisation and found materials. Again, now this I would, the, the Samaras book I would describe as a sculptural bookwork. A bookwork is a work about books as much as a book that you might be expected to read in, an, in a natural way. And this is yet a different example. Uh, the title of this work is Hegel, Works in 20 Volumes from 1974. Uh, the way that Diderot made this work was he took the work in 20 volumes, he sliced up the pages, mixed it with gelatin, and stuffed the sausage skins with um, part of the text from that illustrious work, and then he, he took the book labels off of the spines of the books and labeled each of the sausages and created this very nice showpiece for us uh, that maybe is more of a, content, a comment on what he thought of the content as much as anything else. But that is the whole point behind a sculptural bookwork. It makes you comment, it makes you talk about the ideas or the symbols or metaphors at play. So imagine this, okay, this is what, 1974, just about the same time, a little earlier. 
So after this taste of the sculptural bookwork, let's return to the world of the bound book, but stay in the visual. Two printers, Walter Hamity and Claire Van Vliet, exerted the greatest influence around this time. Both Van Vliet and Hamity read widely, and both printed books of poetry that reside within the traditions of fine printing, gorgeous books, chapbooks of poetry, etc. But both also developed an alter identity with which they ranged further. Hamity, for instance, while printing in Wisconsin and teaching at the University of Madison, indulged his trickster's instincts in his Gabberjab series. This is Gabberjab number five from 1981. You can see that it's made out of a, a simple binding board with uh, exposed binding, and you can see stamps along the side, and somehow he's gotten a hold of a postage meter stamp so that he could stamp it. And here's an inside view of it. Uh, Hamity loved to tweak librarians. Librarians both loved and hated him, and he just thought this was the best thing in the world. And one of the things that drove him wild is uh, probably much earlier than this. He had visited a special collections and found um, a pocket uh, glued in the back of a fine press book. So what he resolved to do with this special playful Gabberjab series was just provide the pocket straight up front for the librarian. Uh, there's another book that he had a pocket on and he had put himself in silhouette, a little portrait, self-portrait on the pocket. This was classic. And his footnotes, he decided to create a little pamphlet that he could put in the pocket rather than um, print them in the usual way at the back of the book. Well, Claire Van Vliet, working uh, different places but ending up in Vermont for the better part of 30 years, is perhaps best known for her experiments with structure, strategy, and media. In the mid-60s, she was in Philadelphia and worked alongside Fluxus artist, here he is again, Dieter Rote, for a while. And so you can sort of see the, his influence. The two collaborated. Um, and this is her book, Four Letter Words, from 1964. And actually, in the student work in the library that uh, Colin showed us the other day, I did see a book with divided pages. That was uh, a technique that artists started playing with in this country around 1960 in the 60s because they were appropriating these kids' book structures. Because when you open a book, right, you're open to it. And if it's a, if it's a children's book structure, you're all the more open to the content. Well, here Claire Van Vliet decides to take that structure in the 60s and uh, deal with language, deal with surprise, deal with uncertainty, and indeed some of the words um, are not even in English. Uh, Dieter wrote, uh, provided them in Icelandic, I think it was. So the book was meant to be a puzzle, but a puzzle that would provide a shock, kind of a little electrical shock at the end when uh, the unwary reader solves the puzzle. Very 60s. In another direction, Van Vliet invented a new medium. Here we see her book, Aura, from 1977, a year before the first book appears in Colorado from the press, that she created with her technique called paper pulp painting. To do it, she paints different colored paper pulps in sequence onto a paper mold so that when the sheet dries, the image is in the paper. It lives in the substrate. Here's a recent book that she published that uses the same process. It provides her with a very nice sculptural sense along the, along the, the upper edge of it. It's called Batterers, a Difficult Topic, uh, published in 1996 with a poem by Denise Levertov. Well, let me just kind of go even farther afield for a second and mention one more source, uh, just because I think it's important to mention a, a, a literary source, a written source that book artists were 
pretty much uniformly reading about that time. Um, it comes, believe it or not, from 1895 from an essay by the symbolist poet Stéphane Mallarmé called The Book, A Spiritual Instrument. This is one of those interesting things that book artist after book artist brings up or uses when they're writing their artist statement, so it clearly opened a door for a lot of them. Um, in the essay, Mallarmé famously described the page as a surface upon which a motif type or a line, some kind of a mark, has been placed according to the book's distribution of light. Okay? So what happened was, at least the way I imagine this, is if you have a light table today, and this is how artists think anyway, but if you put um, a piece of type down, if you put your hand down, if you draw a line across it, suddenly the negative space gets much more energized because it's playing off of that positive mark. And as somebody who studied calligraphy years ago, you look at the negative space um, almost more than you look at the line that you're drawing. So book artists were reading these thoughts of Mallarmé's, and not only that, they were looking at it down into the book block as if the pages were transparent, and they were they were focusing on the process of paging through a book. So when you're looking at a book opening, we call it, which is a, such a nice word, you look at both pages, right? You've got your type and your image, as I'm sure you've been thinking about with Colin of the Press, and then you turn the page. But as you're turning the page, uh, you still have this left-hand page still exposed, and you're just starting to show the right-hand page. And they take all of that into account. It's not just a process. It's kinetic. It's time-based. It's movement, it can be performance. And the more that they thought about that, the more excited they got about it. Um, there's an artist, Keith Smith, whose work I won't be showing today, but he did an entire series of books on it and even wrote a book about it. So what I've tried to do, rather quickly, is to suggest kind of a synopsis of the climate within which the press at Colorado College was founded. For the most part, the first aesthetic that we looked at, the aesthetic uh, personified in the books of Harry Duncan, that was the aesthetic that most people associated with fine printing at the time. But uh, the fact of the matter is that there was this, this visual aesthetic that was kind of elbowing its way in, and printers such as Claire Van Vliet and Walter Hamity, who are excellent printers in their own right, kind of found entrance through that, through their more traditional work, their classical, beautiful work, and then they brought their artistic persona in with them. And so it was a great time for a press um, to be founded. Jim Trissel brought these two tracks of the visual and the language track together in his work. This is a book from 1989 from the press called Indersnade. It pairs a melodic poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins with Trissel's tapestry of pattern and color. Trissel personified this new kind of letterpress printer for whom the literary and the visual posed equally productive sources, although I should always emphasize that I, I believe the literary was, was very, very close to his heart, and I'll talk more about that in a little bit. Um, and in further illustration of that, before he turned to painting, Trissel had studied English at the University of Iowa as an undergraduate and helped to start the literary journal there called December. And equally important to the book art field as a whole, Trissel embodied the persona of the artist as educator visionary. Consider his book, Color for the Letterpress, from 1987. This is from the analogous color section. The book is still revered for its luminous color fields that entrance as well as educate printers and others to the practices and possibilities of color printing on the letterpress. 
Trissel brought the knowledge and the confidence of a painter to exhaustively working through process all the way to product. And again, this book, uh, as well as others by the press, will be available next door after the talk, and I really um, suggest that everyone take time to spend some time with it. Instead of just printing a lovely book, though, Trissel endeavored to print a book that would carry his tutorial into any printer studio. His voice in the explanatory text of the book is of the magician revealing the trap door, or here, a painter as printer explaining the nuts and bolts of creating color for the specific conditions at play in letterpress. I can't tell you how many printers have come up to me and pointed to this book as a turning point in enlarging their thinking about expression, and not only about their own work, but about teaching about color in letterpress. In Minneapolis, I can think of Chip Schilling, who has taught color classes from his experience in one of Trissel's classes from the 1990s. And this November, Paulette Myers-Rich will teach something called Color Crash Course Poster Printing Adventure, which will be a weekend intensive where she's going to try to distill uh, the teachings from this book into something that will happen in the print studios at MCBA. So how big a change did color represent to find printing at that time and in this country? As I bet you can guess, I think it represented a major change when it came to the ease of adding color. Traditionally, in letterpress, fine press books were associated primarily with language, right? And color on the page was restricted or even subdued. That was in large part because every time a printer changed colors, he or she had to completely clean the press of the previous ink. Every additional color then multiplied a printer's time at the press exponentially. Multiple color runs were rare, most often found in deluxe books. Now here I've just thrown another term into the mix. Deluxe books is, well, it's a terrible term, but it's the term I use, to describe books that are very often of large scale. Uh, traditionally, they are often published by dealers, and they'll carry a recognized artist's visual material with a classic literary text, okay? Um, but then there are some books that I would call deluxe that I think are, are really successful books. Uh, Leonard Baskin's uh, Gehenna Press books uh, fall within that category. This is his Capriccio in which he publishes poetry by his friend Ted Hughes from 1990. And just to give you a sense of scale, this book is 20 inches more or less high by 14 wide. So when you open it up, uh, basically as, as several books do in this category, it fills your field of vision. Okay, it's not like you're walking across a gallery up to a painting and you slowly approach and watch it come closer into your field of vision. With a book, it's intimate, isn't it? We have it in our laps, more or less, depending on the book. And that means that it has all the more impact when you open it up, as you do in this book. Around the time of Color for the Letterpress, I do want to mention that there were a few other experiments going on with uh, multicolored wood engraving. Gaylord Shanilek of Minnesota, who now lives in Wisconsin, taught himself wood engraving and began to print books whose crystalline imagery begins with a photograph that he translates onto the block. The wood engravings are printed in five to seven colors using three to five different blocks. And here you have a, a it gives you a sense of how Gaylord would deconstruct the image and then reconstruct it. And here's the finished image there. This was his first book and appeared the same year as Trissel's color book. And this is something I just realized as I was pulling this talk together. This is pretty interesting to think about. I do think that letterpress printers were uh, really looking 
uh, uh, fervently for some means to add color and pattern in the press. And I, I just associated Jim Trissel with the first, and in many ways with his technique he is. But still, this is very interesting because not many people at all were doing this. The book High Bridge documents the final moments of a historic bridge in St. Paul before its demolition. Shanelick's achievement with multicolored wood engraving was considerable, and indeed, last year he won the most prestigious book prize in letterpress, the Ruggaganic Prize, in Oxford for his book Silva. His developments spearheaded a reconsideration of wood engraving by younger printers, perhaps in part because his imagery still carries a cool, contemporary photographic character so different from earlier wood engravings. So into this environment, in that same year, Trissel's book, Color for the Letterpress, appears from the press at Colorado College, appearing maybe like a ray of light or more like a prism shedding refracted light into many colors. Not to diminish Shanelek's accomplishment, Trissel made color differently. He experimented with adding extenders to ink to thin it and make it more transparent. The gossamer thin ink was then layered in multiple runs through the press using a tint block or cut. Each pass added a layer of ink and so created another deeper density or value of color. Continuing along these lines provided additional colors with which a printer could create nuances in tone and texture to enrich a page without cleaning the press. And I put those words in all caps because everybody who's ever talked about this, including Jim Trussell, pretty much would shout it without cleaning the press. And sure enough, when I looked at Paulette Myers Rich's class write-up uh, for the workshop coming up, she writes the words without cleaning the press in it. So this is big stuff for printers. Other printers were experimenting with printing multiple colors around the time. Most notably, Ken Campbell of England was, but none, none in this way. He, he has to clean the press between colors as well. Trissel then reduced the need for repeated cleaning of the rollers, and his book demonstrated his method systematically to make the point that the process of nuancing color could be achieved in a controlled, additive manner that provided printers with a greatly expanded palette. The book created a buzz, opening up new aesthetic dimensions to letterpress. To printers faced with the diminishing returns of lead type, Trissel handed them a new expressive voice through color. The proportions of some of these slides are not that great, but that's okay. The book is next door. Trissel offered printers something equally valuable, I think, which was a painter's approach to printing. Now, this might be overstating things a bit because, in general, letterpress printers need to be equally inventive and committed, or stubborn. We could say stubborn, and it would probably be okay. To produce a book takes hundreds of hours, and a printer may just as well spend an afternoon futzing with the registration of an image or flummoxed over a mechanical quirk of the press as in making art. Of course, this is true to some extent in other art disciplines, but my experience is that the letterpress printer has to be part mechanic to do good work. Artists who print letterpress seem to self-select as artists who like to work within challenging constraints. Beyond the mechanical, there is the fact of the size of the press bed, in which, as we see here, the type is locked up or secured so that it won't move when the rollers roll over it. The size of the press bed determines the size of the printer's sheet of paper, more or less. Before the late 1980s, if a printer wanted to move his or her type around, they had to invest time in locking up the type into the desired shape, and for the most part, they still do that today but I'm setting myself up to make a few comments about a different technique. 
1996, Trissel captured this stubborn independence and tied it to painting when he wrote that, quote, as a painter for over 25 years, I know that painting proceeds from one mess to the next, one mistake to its rectification. There is never something that can't be improved through invention, editing, and work. In painting, color, structure, surface, and image are native to the mix, and paint, in some ways like ink, is just the only way to get at it. Trissel's readiness to make a mess, to fix it, and so to emerge with a better outcome spoke to an openness to improvisation that printers could understand as they stood at the press setting type for a colophon to make it fit on the remaining space on a page or a line. Trissel just brought a painter's collaboration with chance and error into the conscious creative practice of letterpress. Now, Robin Price, who visited the press here this last year, no doubt spoke of Trissel's profound effect over her own work. Her book, Slurring at Bottom, A Printer's Book of Errors, would probably never have happened without her absorbing Trissel's insights into invention, editing, and work during her first visit to Colorado College in 1997. Jim Trissel's pedagogical leanings, his desire to share his insights with other printers, were demonstrated in that decision, decision to create tutorials in Color for the Letterpress and the later book, Letterpress Workbook, that appeared 10 years later in 1997. This orientation toward outreach that is natural in a teacher continued to evolve. Before Color appeared, Trissel had started on another ambitious project that he christened the printed poem, the poem as print. This uh, project um, took place between 1983 and 1986. It had a really long period of gestation. This is uh, this reaping by Jay Perini. Trissel resolved to create an edition of 24 broadsides in a larger scale more common for painting. The dimensions varied, but most of these broadsides uh, measured about 24 inches by 18 inches wide uh, in an edition of 150 copies. The series celebrated American poets in previously unpublished poems. This work is Epithal Epithalamium, I hope, by Robert uh, Pack. Trissel shaped the typographic and visual field to respond to each poem and integrated a variety of processes, linoleum and woodcut, blind debossing and photo engraving, as well as his experiments with transparent ink colors to fit the needs of the different poems. Even before the printed poem, the poem as print, was completed, before the first laudatory review appeared, Trissel was plotting to schedule a traveling exhibition of the prints as a means of introducing his ideas about image and text and visual typography to a wider audience. It showed on both coasts and in the Midwest. From outreach, Trissel invited the national community in to convene at the press at Colorado College. A group of book art educators had been sponsoring conferences since 1983, that same group I mentioned at the beginning. In 1988, 40 leading printers and book art supporters spent three days in Colorado Springs networking, discussing, debating, and I'm sure arguing. So we've moved from the influence of painting to Trissel's efforts at outreach to printers and students. As a third contribution, Trissel addressed concerns that by the late 80s worried letterpress printers. I started in the field in 84. Uh, if I had to make a, a graph of 
who was satisfied with their work conditions at that time across the field, the printers were way down. As photo offset composition took over and more commercial printers converted to offset printing, they left the market for lead type. As a result, type foundries struggled and many closed. Supplies of quality lead type continued to diminish. In this increasingly desperate climate, and it was among some printers, Trissel heard about developments with polymer plate makers that had been improved and adapted to communicate with personal computers, polymer meaning plastic, so relief plates of plastic. At the same time, the shudderingly clunky early pixelated fonts available to PCs and the dot matrix printers were thankfully being replaced by historically related fonts designed by renowned typeface designers. In other words, these designers knew how to create fonts that had good bones, letter forms that held their lines as they emerged from the new laser printers that were becoming more and more common. Trissel put the two together and realized that once again he may have found a way through a situation. In this case, a source for relief printers to tap into the rapidly proliferating fonts. He wrote a grant to the National Endowment for the Arts. This was the good old days. He got the grant and printed his magnum opus, The Cycle of the Day, A Book of Hours, in 1991. The choice of subject for the book was brilliant. A Book of Hours is one of the earliest of book types, as I'm sure people know from uh, Carol Neal's classes. A medieval worship guide, generally of intimate size, to be carried and referenced throughout the day by a devout lady, usually. It was an historical book type admired, even revered, by book lovers and collectors. But typically, Trissel wasn't interested in mimicking the appearance of A Book of Hours while printing it under the radar with a new technology. This is the usual means of introducing a new printing method, such as when set type adopted the format and look of hand-lettered manuscripts. Not for Trissel. His interpretation of the Book of Hours was as a painter and printer in love with language, image, and color. His format perhaps unconsciously reflected a reaction to a set, a sense of constriction and diminishment in the field, opening to one of abundance. This is Vespers. And um, I should mention as well that, uh oh, is this slide backwards? Tell me it's not. Is it backwards? No? Okay. Um, as also, you can see the, the track of, the, of um, the planets above there. Printers are a suspicious lot tied to their 19th century technology with its unique demands and rewards, along with an aesthetic sensibility that was beginning to diverge from a single previous standard, the standard that I showed with Harry Duncan. Uh, again, you can see that standard, you can see the high quality of design in Trussell's work, but obviously there is a visual sensibility here that is quite refreshing. So who knows how long it would have taken, if ever, for established printers to have recognized the possibility of polymer. Cycle is large-scale, magnificent, and embrace. This is Compline. It is indeed a painter's book, a canvas that opens wide across its three panels. The scale of it allowed a large quantity of text as Trissel pulled together an ambitious selection that included voices from the Bible as well as contemporary writers. No problem with type supply here. Trissel hit upon the idea of two panels carrying the texts that frame a central panel of imagery and color. Now this too was a gutsy move. 
Trissel wanted to work with polymer plates and his developments with color to visually create a series of central panels that related one to the next and that could also stand on their own to balance against the fields of text on either side. He wasn't going to accomplish this with one assertive graphic image, a woodcut say, but rather through a collage of elements that would take final shape to some point in the press bed in the moment as he built it. And this is Vigil. Trissel began generating images through a number of means, including the copier, creating different qualities of line, varying resolutions, to see how they would translate onto the page. He directed some grant monies toward the purchase of a large magnetic plate that sat down in the bed of the press. This allowed Trissel to improvise to some point as he freely could shift the polymer plates around, the plates were backed by metal, free of the need to lock up the type. After adopting his painter's understanding of color to letterpress, Trissel hit upon a way to use a new generation of fonts and to translate the fine lines of his drawings and calligraphy onto that relief surface. The resulting pages worked. There's a lot of text, but in the expansive double gatefold format, there's enough room for language and for each of the visual environments that he invoked in the book. I'm painting my own picture for you here, in which books and events march along in support of my premise of the leadership of the press at Colorado College. I've suggested three points, from painterly to polymer to promotional. The truth of how things happen, as most of us know, is far less directed and more elusive. Life is one part happenstance, one part direction, and two parts attitude. Type is disappearing. What other options are there? Colorado Springs isn't in Manhattan, which is all to the good. Then you invite the national field in to Colorado Springs. Especially in the arts, it's helpful to adopt an entrepreneurial activism to make your own luck. Those of us in the liberal arts can learn this lesson more than once. Finally, there is a fourth contribution that has ultimately found expression here today at Colorado College. Jim Trissel recognized that in the study and the making of books resided the heart of the liberal arts mission. And this is Jim Trissel with a student. Trissel outlined his ideas in an essay that appeared in the Journal of Artists Books, an essay that I would recommend to everyone here today. And uh, as I finish up with my final comments here, I'm showing slides of my favorite book of the press, Daedalus, that I'm not going to discuss, but darn it, I just wanted to look at the images. So you get to enjoy this. And this is uh, written, uh, Jim Trissel authored the text in the voice of Daedalus. And uh, we know what happened when his son Icarus flew too close to the sun. So it's, it's that kind of a story. And the, the writing is very strong, and it has the same range of exultation and grief. Okay. The essay that he wrote, titled The Rise of the Book in the Wake of Rain, answered the dismissal of letterpress printing as anachronistic by some in the book art field. Okay, this has been around forever, this dismissal. Every art field has its arguments. And to me, this charge uh, totally lost any credibility uh, with the use of um, the, pr the press alongside the computer. Uh, with digital access via the polymer plate maker, but those kinds of arguments don't necessarily um, deal with fact.
But still, Trissel felt that he, he could respond to this kind of underlying criticism, and so distilled his 30 years of working in the studio and of teaching painting, printing, and art history into a talky, dense essay in defense of letterpress and books and art and literature, along with the dangers of simplistic dismissals. Toward the end, he stated, quote, It is still important that the making of books be seen as a process, and why I still prefer the letterpress. Because there are two major requirements in the making of a good book. One, that it have content worth spending huge amounts of time on, and why text may still be of major importance. And then, duration, the time itself in which an idea can grow to be the branch that bears the flower. Yes, duration, reflection, and response, a fragile species, to just extend the metaphor, that's best cultivated in the academic garden before submitting this flowers to the rigors of the open meadow or the urban flower pot, something else like that. So this most recent chapter in the press's history is being written now. That chapter takes us from the uncertainties of the press after Jim Trissel's passing in the fall of 1999. At that time, many in this field across America grieved both Jim's passing and the uncertain future that faced the press, even as the press continued to operate on a more modest level under the direction of Brian Melanthi and then Chris Forsyth. It is a difficult fact of life for campus fine presses that they wax and wane with a printer's loss or transition or with changes in administrative leadership. What happened soon were the letters in support of the press and its continuance. They were written by the faculty of Colorado College, and there are several who continue to be its champions, as well as book collectors, artists, faculty, critics, curators, and others across America. Efforts were directed toward funding a future for the press, and after some years of effort and the arrival of President Celeste, those efforts to continue Trissel's metaphor have borne fruit. So, looking forward, I'll put the maze up for this question. Looking forward, how will vision continue to find its way for the press at Colorado College? How has the larger world of books, art, and literature changed in the last 30 years? I've noted that the press at Colorado College exerted influence over letterpress in the areas of painting, polymer, and publicity. There I go again. I couldn't help it. Finally, Trissel formulated <clears throat> a philosophy an argument for the continuance and vitality of the campus fine press as a nexus for the interdisciplinary study of the liberal arts. What's amazing to me is that I don't remember anyone else articulating this argument. It was assumed that it was um, understood by all concerned, but in truth, it needed to be talked about, it needed to be spoken about, it needed to be clarified. Today, the situation facing Colin Fraser, the printer here at the Press of Colorado College, and those others who give over to this work is absolutely different and yet familiar to that that faced Jim Sitter. What has changed? Well, I'm just going to mention a few things. The first change is an ironic one, and this might be a different um, observation depending on where you are in the country. And I'm actually spending the next year looking at that, this very question. So <clears throat> all I can say is that letterpress printing faces its greatest challenge today from abundance. In Minneapolis, I can say, and in several of the educational and nonprofit programs in the U.S., we're witnessing a tremendous growth in interest in printing from artists and others of all ages. But where are the presses? 
The Vandercook proofing press, to mention one make of press most often sought by printers, hasn't been produced since the 1960s. Presses that printers could pick up from a printing business free or for very little money today, believe it or not, can demand thousands of dollars on eBay and there is no guarantee once a printer gets his or her prize home that the thing will work well. Last week I spent time in the printing studios at MCBA with two of its most respected teachers, Paulette Myers-Rich, whom I've already mentioned, and Regular Russell. They told me that every class they offer fills, often spilling onto a waiting list that for the first time ever, they're considering putting a cap on the number of people who can sign up for the printing co-op, which provides access to presses to the general public for a nominal fee. There simply aren't enough presses to go around. They're beginning to think about adapting their teaching to incorporate printing with an intaglio press. So, abundance of interest meeting a scarcity of means. One result of this is that studios like that at the press at Colorado College only grow in value. Nationally, the collision of needs poses a challenge that awaits the ingenuity of the American artist worker for a solution. The second change concerns isolation. And again, this problem, or whether or not it is a problem, dramatically varies depending on where a printer is located. So, speaking from the Minneapolis area, the profound isolation in which many letterpress printers operated is gone. Well, I can say in the virtual sense at least. In the internet age, in the age of Google, you have to be pretty determined not to be connected. That connection has revealed and expanded into an impressive safety net. On the Let Press or Book Arts listservs, a printer can post a question about a particular paper or some mechanical glitch, and the answer may appear momentarily from Massachusetts, Australia, or South Africa. Of course, what you can't get is the printer to come and stand next to you, and that's what's really nice about a larger city, but at least there is some sense of connection, some sense of questions being answered quickly if you have that need. Still, I want to conclude by noting that some things remain the same. Beyond the polymer plate maker and the computer monitor, the act of printing and the related arts of binding and paper making continue. The presses turn and ink is pressed into paper fibers. The paper maker dips a mold and decal into the paper slurry, lifts, shakes, and amid the cascade of water released, the paper pulp shifts into astonishing coalescences into a sheet of paper. And marbling inks dance from the marbler's comb drawn across the surface of the water, sending colors into pirouettes, drawing a classic pattern, or playing with a new one. Finally, let's remember that it is the books from the press at Colorado College that live on, the books that argue most eloquently for the continuance of the press. <clears throat> The books continue to be read, savored, and used by teachers in schools and nonprofit art centers across America. The press's profile is strong, it does continue, and its audiences eagerly await a new crop of books from the press. The books from the press outlive Jim Trissel, they will outlive us, just as the future press books will do. Their voices are never quieted. Read the colophons that call out student names from past years, like a roll call of a Colorado College community of the book. These press hands graduated into lives of design, of writing, of art, 
perhaps of printing, but I'll wager that every one of them still thrills when they run across a handmade book as they return to the sensuous, as they caress the sheet or admire the thinness of the book's boards. Here's the secret. Once initiated into this interdisciplinary, cross-fed world of language and image and touch, the student emerges, book in hand, changed at the cellular level. Colin Fraser and his students, along with the faculty and friends of the press, all are finding their way near these Rockies that steal our breath to release it up into the clouds. Even so, we know that the values of liberal arts education, which I see as built upon the learned traits of reading and reflection, only face increased incursions from the proliferating media streams. Educators serve on the front lines of this battle, the battle for a way of reading, a way of thinking through, a way of learning to listen to ourselves so that our own vision can find its way. Language and art and books return us to reflection. There is no more valuable work than this, conducted within the walls of Colorado College and elsewhere. The wider book art field owes Colorado College much, and it celebrates this renewal with all of us in these crossover worlds of image, text, touch, and time, created in books such as in Revador. Or, as Jim Trissel wrote, in support of teaching printing, as he ended his 1993 essay, this is the time to identify, encourage, develop these talents. Each reinforces the other. The climate is perfect, the season right, the soil ready. Wait the rise of books in the wake of rain. Thank you.